Hello and welcome to episode number 98 of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, all things related and debated in agriculture. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. This episode of the podcast has been prepared for release onto our website, agroinnovations.com slash podcast, on Monday, July 19th, 2010. This episode is also another installment in the Holistic Management series of the Agro-Innovations Podcast and is sponsored by Holistic Management International. The Holistic Management series of the Agro-Innovations Podcast is dedicated to issues in research, data, and documentation, and all of these areas are linked together by the common theme of holistic management. If you would like to learn more about holistic management or perhaps um, receive some training or education in holistic management, then please visit Holistic Management International's website at holisticmanagement.org. I will link to that on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. Holistic Management, Healthy Land, Healthy Profits. On this episode of the Agro-Innovations Podcast, we are joined by Colin Seiss. Colin is a farmer, consultant, and agricultural innovator who farms in New South Wales, Australia. He is most well known for his pioneering work in the area of pasture cropping, which is a system developed by Colin using perennial grazing pastures and planted cereal crops. Colin Seiss, welcome to the Agro-Innovations Podcast. Thank you. Okay, why don't you start by telling us about your background and your work before you began experimenting with uh, pasture cropping. Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm fourth-generation uh, farmer I, I, in the same area, on the same farm here in Australia. Uh, my great-grandfather settled this, this uh, uh, country here, or this farm, in, in, in the 1860s. And um, our family have been here ever since. And I, I grew up with, with that background and, and, and farming. I guess my grandfather, great-grandfather, all farmed with horse teams and... and then my my father was also a very you know he was a very innovative uh, farmer and very much into high input high technology uh, farming for his time which was the 1930s and 1940s. However, that crashed in a big way and, and um, I started to look at, uh, at at doing things differently with with more low input agriculture from the 1980s on. What led you to begin experimenting with pasture cropping, and at what point did you realize that you were on the process of discovering something quite significant? A friend of mine, Daryl Clough, and myself, who is a, is a, a, a neighboring farmer, um, used to get together to basically try and solve the problems of the world, which, is, <laughs> which we never, never solved that problem. But we um, <clears throat> bounced a lot of ideas off each other, and, and one time we, we just thought about why couldn't we sow uh, crops into, as in cereal crops like oats and wheat and barley, into the, the, the native pastures here, which are primarily summer-growing uh, pastures and, and grow the, the, uh, the wheat and oats in, into those pastures in our winter period, which is normal time to sow the crops here in Australia, uh, without killing the grasses at all. And, and um, we saw great benefits from it. And also, I had in the back of my mind, a long time before that, looking at, at ploughing or killing pastures just to sow, sow uh, uh, crops into them and, and having to kill those pastures to sow the crops. And I saw it as a dreadful waste of, of pasture, uh, loss of money, loss of income. And so I, was, I guess I was always searching for another way of doing it. 
and, and then stumbled across this this way of of doing it and direct drilling or zero tilling uh, crops into those grasses without killing them. Um, it worked for the first year that I tried it, it. It worked very well, and we got what grain, as in um, oats, we put in that first year. The first time we started, it worked very well. Okay, were these um, irrigated pastures? Were they pastures that had been planted, or were they native pastures? Okay, no, not irrigated. No, there's no irrigation here. There's not a lot of irrigation in Australia, generally. Uh, certainly some, but not none here on my farm. The these were native uh, grasses. Um, interestingly, when I first started putting the, these, these these crops into the native grasses, I didn't have many. The the the, um, the the percentage of native grasses was only 10%. Mostly it was weeds. It was over 60% weeds and, and some, some clover on it. So I was not working with a very uh, good base of perennial. These are perennial grasses, very good base of perennial grasses at all. Um, so one of the big things that happens or the, the most important things about pasture cropping is that it encourages the recruitment of, of perennial grasses and that's recruitment from seed. And over that period, with these techniques, I've restored this farm now to a native grassland uh, where, where there's well over 80% native grass species and, um, sorry, 80% native grass uh, uh, plants here, plus about 50 uh, individual plants, as in, as in it's increased diversity and numbers of plants over that time. So it's used very much as a, a um, restoration technique as much as growing crops. Okay, now you, as you mentioned, you've been doing this for a little while now, and I'm sure uh, the practice has evolved over time as you've experimented with it. Can you talk a little bit yep. about how the practice has evolved? Yes, yes. Um, when we first started, uh, we found it necessary to use a herbicide to control the weeds in this primarily weedy pasture, um, and and that was uh, the, the, we did that herbicide application just before we 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 sowed, and as the as the uh, the, the grasses were starting to become dormant in our winter, as in uh, um, not actively growing because the seasons were getting colder. Uh, and, and using a herbicide at that, that stage, and, and also we were using relatively high inputs of, of fertilisers at that, at that stage as well, well, normal fertiliser rates. As it's progressed, i found now that I can uh, grow crops organically uh, or without herbicides and very low fertiliser rates, and, and, and now we're using organic fertilisers. So it's evolved into um, very low input and or and and it can be taken to an organic farming uh, technique as well, um, and 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 all of that by and we can still grow very good crops just as high yielding as conventional cropping um, without those inputs and and also reuse it to restore grasslands at the same time. Can you talk us through a typical pasture cropping scenario as it currently functions? What are the specific processes, and in what order are they implemented? We we need to do something with with the the the, the, the grass that's that's growing in, in the paddocks. Like we're still using agronomy principles in, in in growing the crop, but 
what, what we're, we're doing, is, how we're managing that, those, that, that agronomy is, is, is just in a different manner. So we're using large mobs of animals, um, and here we, we, we're using um, three, about 3,000 sheep in one mob, merino sheep in, in, in one mob to uh, control weeds, but more important to that, and than that, to mulch the, the the grass on the ground, just like like a, a garden, like a veg, like vegetable uh, garden, where we're putting a lot of mulch and litter on the ground, that controls weeds and also um, um, uh, increases water infiltration, uh, and also we're finding very very rapid increases in in, in organic carbon sequestration as well. With the pasture cropping now, you are using no-till tractors, I guess, to uh, put yep. to drill the seed into the ground. That, that's right. Uh, um, after we've mulched that that, that area, um, usually there's no no weeds on on it, and then we can go go straight into those areas with a with with, with a, a, a no-till um, seeder, and, and so the crop. And, very much in a conventional sense, in the you know, no-till cedar, um, I got, and I'm using conventional, uh, sorry, uh, organic type fertilisers and no herbicides. Um, people, when they first start, are still using um, uh, some herbicides and conventional fertilisers, but then move towards a, a more organic um, system. Are you seeding the pasture in some cases where maybe the range is really degraded? Or have you not found the need to do that? Are there circumstances where maybe when someone's getting started, they need to seed the pasture with perennial grasses? Yep. I haven't sown any perennial grasses here at all. Um, it's all came back uh, through these techniques and, and natural recruitment. And that almost always happens. It's quite rare if you don't get a lot of, lot of very rapid recruitment of, of perennial grasses. Um, you, certainly, you can sow uh, grasses if, you, if if that's required, and if there's not enough diversity of species in there, that can be done. But generally, I, I recommend to people not to do that um, and, and, and encourage natural recruitment, um, and, and that's a um, better, more cost-effective way of doing it. Um, and and not only that, you're getting the grass species that really uh, are suited to your environment. Talk a little bit about the fertilization recommendations. Do you, are you fertilizing at the beginning? Are you fertilizing before the animals go through? After? Uh, is the fertilizer more? Are, do you have to apply more fertilizer when you first start pasture cropping, and then once you get the system going, it has less of a need of fertilizer? Okay. Yeah. Certainly. Uh, when when we first start, well, when I first started, and when people first start. Uh, there, there is a need to to maintain uh, whatever fertilizer that people have been using before, and that fertilizer is for 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 the crop, for the oats or wheat or barley, whatever is sown. Um, but as soil as soil health improves, and, and one of the the great benefits of it of this technique is that it very rapidly improves soils and soil health like soil structure and, and actually build soil, um, like increases uh, topsoil quite rapidly. And consequently, we can then start reducing fertilizer inputs. And I started here, for example, um, 
uh, of a fairly normal cropping uh, fertiliser here, which was 100 kilograms per hectare here in Australia, um, of a, a nitrogen and phosphorus fertiliser. Uh, then I cut it, I, over time I cut it back to 30 kilos per, per hectare, and, and now I, I'm using more, more organic fertilisers. Um, but when people first start, I, I normally recommend that people use use whatever fertiliser whatever fertiliser they would normally use, and then gradually wean off it. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about the role of the grazing animals in pasture cropping. Uh, you mentioned yep. that you're using sheep um, yep. at high densities. Are you doing grazing planning uh, every year as you kind of put together your farm plan at the beginning of the year? Yep. Yes, it's certainly a, a planned grazing or time-controlled grazing. Um, and animals are an absolutely essential part of, of this. And I, I honestly believe that we should never take livestock, either the sheep or cattle, out of agriculture at all, including cropping agriculture, very important component of, of, of um, farming. Um, but uh, uh, it, we, we're rotating our, our animals here and... and, and Usually the recovery period, as in the recovery from for the pastures to recover, is um, three to four months um, and even out to five months before the animals return onto those areas. Um, and um, it, it's absolutely essential part of, um, of, of pasture cropping to have those animals in large mobs um, because then you can manipulate the, the, the pastures and mulch paddocks uh, or areas down pre-sowing. It, it's not, and not only that, we're, we're actually transferring a lot of fertiliser in, 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 uh, in urine and manure on, onto paddocks, which also is driving our costs of our fertilisers down for our crops. Now, at 3,000 head of sheep, um, how many hectares are you grazing per paddock these sheep on? Um, generally about only about uh, 15 hectares um, this uh, the farm total farm here is is um, about 800 hectares or 2,000 acres uh, the, the total area and, and we have about 75 paddocks uh, or fields here so those are paddocks with fencing with fencing yes yes so you're moving your animals quite frequently Yes, it, they'd be moved. Um, that does vary uh, from, from two to five days. Uh, they will be moved. However, um, before we, uh, when we're preparing uh, uh, to put uh, to sow, sow a um, or plant a, a, a crop into the, the areas, we we generally leave them there a bit longer than that, maybe up to ten days, um, uh, and, and then maybe bring them back more frequently onto those areas. To, to add manure to it, but and also mulch the paddock. Now, the mulching that's going on, how much of that is the perennial grasses, and how much of that is the that's getting mulched into the soil surface is the um, remains of of the last year's standing crop. Most of it is is um, uh, the the perennial grasses being mulched. Uh, it depends on on how it. it, it uh, how much, much, how big a percentage of of, of your farm you're actually sowing to, to or planting to crops? Uh, here, I I put about one third of of the, the my area in, into crops. So, and and I'm and that that third changes each year. 
So I'm moving the, the cropping around as well as the livestock. Um, now, but so but some some farmers now are are, are are cropping larger percentage of their farm than I than I do. Some are farming are, are cropping half to three quarters, and so they, then the, the, they're mulching the 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 remains of last year's last year's crop as well. Uh, so it depends on which way you do it. If if the percentage of crop that you're sowing. Let's talk about the economics of this because I was reading mm. that um, some studies, I believe, on your farm have shown that uh, pasture cropping can reduce costs by 27% of uh, cereal cropping. Tell us about yep. the economics of pasture cropping and why are they so much better than a conventional model? <clears throat> okay. Um, economically, it stacks up very well because just um, in a practical sense, if, if you plant a, cro a crop um, and it's a drought or, yeah, or you get, well, mainly a drought here in Australia is the main reason why you may not get a, a good yield, um, you, you've not, you haven't lost any, any um, uh, you've lost potential for a crop, but what you've actually done is renovated the, 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 the paddock and put some fertilizer on it and enhanced your pasture. So it's almost impossible to lose. It's, a, it's really, it is impossible to lose actually. A very, very safe, very, very low risk. Now, because we're getting very close to the same crop yields, um, what we can do is actually produce a, a, a lot of different enterprises off one given area. And I call it vertical stacking. We, we can, we can um, produce um, not only uh, uh, grazing, and here we're producing meat and, and wool off our merino sheep, but we're also producing um, a, a grain crop. And also uh, then we're, we are harvesting um, native grass seed off, off these areas as well. Um, plus we're in, sequestering carbon and increasing, increasing soil, plus we're <laughs> environmental credits as well. So I mean, it is. You know, we can vertically stack our enterprises on the same area. We're not simply um, uh, just producing one product off, off a given area. Okay, what accounts? So let's look at it just from a one-dimensional perspective. I mean, obviously, there's these benefits of stacking that probably even outweigh this 27% yeah. cost reduction. But um, yeah. it seems like the cost reduction is just when you compare cropping, you know, oats in a pasture cropping system compared to cropping oats in a yep. conventional system. What accounts yes, for the, yeah. the uh, cost reduction? That's right. Um, because because we've got grazing right up to the point of, of, of sowing the crop, we're not preparing a paddock um, uh, by, by spraying it or ploughing it, um, or killing, killing the, the, the pastures. We, we have grazing right up to the point of sowing. And <clears throat> most... Um, gross margins that are done don't factor in loss of production in that in that period where you're preparing a paddock to, to put to put a to, to plant or, or to sow a crop um, so that that's a big saving there to start with also as we reduce our fertilizer inputs down our fertilizer has been reduced by by 70 percent um, from from uh, where, where we were 20 years ago when I started this um, that in itself is, is a very large saving. Uh, now, we, we, we never ever use uh, fungicides. We don't get fungal diseases in crops. We haven't for, for more than 15 years. 
we no longer get insect attack in crops, um, so we don't use insecticides. Um, all those ecological benefits really start stacking uh, up and, and reducing costs enormously. Let's talk a little bit about these agroecological benefits in more detail that you're mentioning. Uh, some people yep. have called pasture cropping one of the greatest breakthroughs in agriculture in a generation, perhaps a millennium. And this is because for the first time we can produce high calorie cereal crops without depleting the soil. Um, can you flesh out a little bit what's going on in terms of the agroecological benefits um, in the yep. soil and with the insects? And um, tell us what yep. you've observed and maybe why you think what's happening is happening. Okay, just uh, in relation to insects to start with, we've had a, an entomologist here checking, um, doing insect counts on neighbouring farm and mine. The neighbouring farm is, is farming how, how I used to farm. Um, and we have 600% more insects on my farm, 25% more diversity on my farm. The, the, the big percentage of insects there are spiders and predatory wasps, those types of things that actually then manage the, the insects that eat crops and eat pastures. So that, that one there is fairly easy to understand. The soil health benefits are, are very interesting and, and quite complex. Um, now, we are very rapidly increasing soil uh, organic carbon levels and we've we've more than doubled the carbon levels on this farm in in the last um in the last 15 years um but and we've also built topsoil from uh, four inches to to 12 inches in in, in about a 10-year period so we've increased the depth of our soil quite significantly um now <clears throat> Why that we why that happens is um, well, to start with we are we're changing it, this, the farm from a, 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 a farm dominated by annual plants, which pre predominantly are weeds, to a very diverse grassland um, with, with many many species in it, and and different uh, rooting depths as, as well. Uh, so, but also what we're doing is adding is putting a perennial uh, sorry an annual an annual cereal crop into that into that perennial grassland and and they are are, 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 are putting a lot of sugars in into the soil like uh, in particular uh, annual plants and, and crops like oats and, and and wheat and barley uh pump a lot of sugars a lot of glucose into the soil which feeds soil microbes and that that's reasonably well known that 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 happens but we're almost force feeding microbes with this with huge amounts of sugar and, and and when you think about it that's nature's microbial food <clears throat> so we, we've got a very rapid build-up of soil microbes and but in particular fungi and 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 and, and mycorrhizal fungi that that then is is, is really driving soil organic carbon levels uh, as well as what's being added um, from the perennial grassland to the soil in organic matter as well so we, we're driving organic carbon levels quite rapidly um, and, 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 and that's driving a lot, certainly the soil health, health side of it. You mentioned soil carbon. You have mentioned soil carbon several times throughout the course of this interview. Yeah. And many people, especially in Australia, are talking about uh, soil carbon farming. Um, I know that you are on the forefront of that movement. And this is particularly interesting considering that Australia is very sensitive to uh, the changes in climate that we are currently experiencing. 
Can you talk yep. about the relationship between pasture cropping, carbon farming, and um, maybe even climate change? Okay, yep. Um, yeah, climate change, climate shift, whatever you wish, wish to call, call it, um, I think certainly happening. Uh, and and um, if it is uh, caused from uh, excess carbon dioxide, I think we can fix that fairly easily. And the only people on the planet that can really fix it are farmers. Um, and the only thing that farmers are managing, the, the way farmers are managing is, is with plants. And their plants are really the only things that can take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and put it in the soil. <coughs> so, <coughs> sorry, through that sequestration methods like photosynthesis and, and, and putting sugars in the soil, as I explained. Now, if we manage our farms correctly and, and get off the high input bandwagon of high fertilisers, high soil disturbance, um, and start driving um, our soils by, with plants, I, I think we can, we can um, uh, uh, quite rapidly remove a lot of the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But it really is only farmers doing it. But the downside of that is that we need... need uh, a lot of rapid education of farmers all across the world to be able to achieve that. And, and um, just on, on this farm here, we've, I've had some soil scientists do the figures, and not my, my figures, on what we're sequestering here. And um, it is about 5,000 tonne of carbon dioxide annually that we, we are actually taking out of the, out of the atmosphere and, and, and putting in the soil, or the plants are, or this process we're using is doing that. And, and that's some some figures that soil science have put, scientists have put on it, not 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 my figures. Pasture cropping has been developed um, in Australia under a particular set of circumstances and environmental and sociocultural conditions. Um, mm. How applicable do you think this is to other parts in the world? I mean, one of the things that I think of in New South Wales is that your winters are fairly mild compared to, say, North Dakota. Is this a practice that yep. can be um, trans transplanted into some place like North America? And what will be some of the constraints to doing that? I think it can be applied uh, almost anywhere, um, but it would need to be tweaked around the edges. It would it, exact, Exactly how it's done here and how I developed it would be different in other countries. And I'm starting to work in, well, it's further south of where I am here in Australia, in Tasmania now, which is which is a lot colder climate and different, different uh, grass species. Um, now, where it fits is where there is a natural niche, where, where, where there is a uh, where things aren't actively growing is, is primarily the niche we're looking for. And if there is a niche there that, that things aren't actively growing and we can, can plant uh, another uh, uh, species, another plant in, into, into that area uh, that's compatible with what else is, is, is dormant there, yes, it can be done. Uh, um, we can also use the same techniques and shut... Uh, plants down, as in create an artificial dormancy on them chemically, but not actually kill the plant, which is another technique that I, 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 I've, I've used here, especially early early days when I was um, developing this. I, I, start, I was actually shutting down plants chemically to to create an artificial niche, and that certainly can be done um, almost anywhere. Um, but uh, and, and that, 
there's some people in Norway pasture cropping, uh, and it's 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 uh, it, it, there. There isn't quite the niche, but it's almost like a companion cropping uh, technique that that is used. Uh, it, it's it, more so than than pasture cropping as I developed it. But uh, but I have started some people in Norway pasture cropping, and there's also people in Sweden planting some crops this year as well. So it, it, um, it I, I think. I think the only limitation on any of this is, is our heads, our thinking, and once we start thinking a bit, bit more laterally, we, we can uh, get around most of these, these, these perceived problems. And I don't think they're really real problems at all. They're, they're just imaginary ones, I, I think, most, most of the time. So talk us through this a little uh, bit in terms of uh, finding that niche in places like Norway and Sweden, where obviously the winters are much more extreme than in uh, New South Wales. Um, yeah. Wh- how are people finding that niche? I mean, what uh, specific annual crop are they putting? When are they putting it in the ground? Um, how are they taking advantage of that? Yep. In Norway, it is different, and and there isn't. There, there's not so much a niche there. Um, they do create create one chemically. Now, in areas like Norway, um, comparing it to say Australia, water is not a limiting factor. Like in Australia here. Uh, 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 water is certainly a limiting factor. In Norway, it's, it is not. So, uh, people in Norway are starting to grow crops that are um, uh, and, and wheat. Uh, in a companion planting, uh, a companion cropping uh, technique, shutting those the, the perennial plants down chemically, at which they recover from. In the meantime, the the, the wheat crop has got the. Com- competitive edge over the perennial grasses and grow quite happily together um, more so than people people believe there in that sense there is definitely definitely a yield penalty in, in in the grain that is produced but the the um, benefits from from the pasture uh, in keeping that, that perennial pasture go, going ecological benefits I think certainly outweigh that that yield penalty so when are they inducing dormancy uh, during the growing season, and uh, how long is that dormancy induced for? And um, yep. and what are they using to induce dormancy? Usually, um, and, and this is pretty well, I'll, I'll talk about what happens here more so. Uh, in, in, in Norway, often they're sowing, sowing the, the, the crop pre pre-snow, pre before it gets cold, sits under the snow, and then, and then germinates out, out of the snow. Um, then using very selective herbicide to shut some of those those those, those um, perennial those plants down, but not kill them. Um, now, for example, here in in Australia, using similar te- techniques, we're using. Um, um, uh, if something's growing quite actively here, like. Um, for your listeners, uh, a C3 plant, which grows at the same time as as a, a a wheat crop, for example, I'll just use that as an example, which we, we're working with a lot in Australia as well, uh, especially as we get further south into Tasmania. Creating a dormancy with with, with a herbicide, and, and those herbicides generally are paraquat and and diquat, those those types of chemicals, which w- will not kill perennial plants, but will but will kill. Uh, annual plants like weeds, um, they, and, and, and shutting them down that way, the, the the plant will recover from that. But but uh, uh, in the meantime, the 
the wheat plant or the oat, the oat plant has, has um, advanced far enough to be quite competitive against that perennial. I was just wondering if the paraquat has an effect on the wheat crop. Ah, yeah, no, you, you're actually doing it. You, you, that paraquat can't be used in in uh, in, um, in Norway. Um, that has to be used before before the the, the, the crop is sown. Um, before before the if if the perennials grow uh, are, are growing before the, the 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 wheat is planted or the or sown. Uh, and, the, and the perennial plants actively growing, then paraquat can be used to shut them down. Uh, it, it, it's, it's far more difficult if, if, if the wheat is there before the, the grasses grow. You couldn't do it with paraquat. Okay, I got it. Tell yeah. us about um, the ongoing research with pasture cropping. I know that um, some research scientists have really started to take an interest in this and quite a serious interest. Yes, there's quite there's quite a lot happening uh, from uh, research from research projects with scientists, um, and but and there is also a, a lot happening with on-farm trials. But I mean, uh, um, not not uh, scientific research, but 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 very very accurately measured measured trials all over Australia now. Um, so a combination of those two things uh, around Australia, and there'd be uh, well in every state of Australia. That's happening now. I think there's about 15 of those happening now around Australia, um, and um, almost all all getting positive results, um, providing the techniques are followed uh, well. It's a bit like anything; it, it's it's like uh, planned or time controlled grazing. Uh, unless it's done well, it it doesn't work as, as well as it should. So the techniques need to be need to be followed quite accurately uh, for it to be successful. And they're getting very positive results in relation to uh, crop yield, and that, that that crop yield can be uh, many people are, are growing growing a forage crop for for animal feed, animal green feed. Um, sometimes they're harvesting grain, sometimes they're not. Some people are growing crops for uh, just grain on its own, so it can be quite flexible, is what I'm saying. Now, the results from those are very positive, um, getting getting uh, good crop yields. Almost all of them are stimulating perennial grass, uh, grass and moving towards a grassland, uh, and, and it's verifying or validating some of the early work that was done here, like um, our major research organisation, which is CSIRO here in Australia, or scientific organisation, did did um, some research work on on my farm. That was about seven or eight, six, seven years ago. And um, that, that, that showed some very positive results also. What about some of the factors that a farmer or a rancher needs to take into account when they're considering adopting pasture cropping? Uh, what are some of the things that um, they need to consider? The most difficult thing for, for, most, for, for farmers is just simply getting understanding that it can be done differently. Um, usually, we have a, a, a mindset on this is the only way we can we can uh, uh, grow a crop, or this is the only way we can graze animals. And getting past that is one of the biggest hurdles that that most people, most farmers have. Um, scientists actually have a bigger problem getting past that hurdle actually than than, than farmers. Um, but that that is the 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 the, the, um, um, the big hurdle. Um, 
having enough confidence to put to put a uh, to sow a, a, a crop into perennial grasses uh, is, is is another big one because we keep on being told uh, that, that it can't be done. Um, having enough confidence then to to allow nature to drive it for us really is, is what, what, it's, what it really is about. Um, in, in nature had it correct in the first place. We just need to mimic the function of nature really, and that's what this is, is all about. Um, and when you think about pasture cropping, really all we're doing is is putting an annual plant into a perennial grassland with some enough disturbance um, to encourage that annual annual plant to grow. That's how grasslands have functioned for millions of years. So we're mimicking that natural function. So it, it's difficult for, for many landholders or many farmers to, to understand that concept um, and understand how nature functions because we've been removed as, as farmers very much from, from nature well, far too much. And, and um, it's, it's all about getting back to that sort of thinking, I, I guess. So how do you recommend a farmer or rancher needs to proceed if and when they decide to start experimenting with pasture cropping? Uh, what are some of the first things that uh, they need to do? Here in Australia, um, uh, what, what, they, what farmers normally do, and most people adopt it by, by going to workshops that I put on to, so they really understand um, all of those things I've been talking about, um, you know, really understand how to manipulate plants, uh, the, the perennial plants, and favour the annual annual plant. Really understand about ecological function and and and, and that 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 side side of things. Um, so so it, it it even though the the principles are very very simple, sometimes it takes a lot to get to to understand or get your head around that type of thinking. Um, that's how most of most most of the adoption in Australia happens, um, but um, I guess it's about r really understanding, knowing what plant species or pasture species you have in in, in your paddocks, um, and then working out where the fit is, where where the natural dormancy is in 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 that. Where are we in the adoption cycle of pasture cropping? And what do you see as the trajectory for the practice oh, for the next several years? Okay. In Australia here, there's a, there is a very large groundswell of, of pasture cropping. There'd be well over 2,000 farmers in Australia uh, pasture cropping. The adoption rate is, is quite quite high. Um, and I, I, I can just say continuing to move forward it, it, there's no there, there's no reason why it's going to go backward as in less adoption uh it, it will con the momentum will continue to build because it's simply it, it works it, it, it is that simple and 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 it is more profitable for farmers so it will certainly move forward um there is starting to become a, some backlash from um the high input um uh, people, the, the high input, um, um, well, multinational companies, for the want of a better word, uh, in, in not only in pasture cropping but many other, uh, many of these other low input systems, which, which, um, so it'll be interesting to see how that goes, and whether they have much influence on 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 the momentum that's happening. 
but um, it, it yeah, certainly will go forward. There is no no doubt about that. It's it's it's, it's almost got a got a, a mind of its own now and, and just driving itself. Well, tell us a little bit about um, how this has been for you personally. I mean, I think that's definitely intriguing. You've stumbled across something just through your own natural curiosity and your own circumstances and your um, work ethic. And it turns out that you've discovered something that is extremely significant, uh, not only for Australia, but uh, for the world. Um, how has the process been for you? And maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's quite interesting um, in that here on my farm, it has been an amazing transformation, um, a transformation in actually seeing a grassland evolve from weeds uh, without any cost, without really, without costing anything, just simply by by a change in, in mindset, a change in thinking, but more, but which but that in itself has been incredibly rewarding. But financially, here things have totally changed because um, uh, it, 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 we're far more profitable than, than we ever were. Uh, or just for example, in relation to that, um, when we were farming uh, conventionally, like high input, on I grew up on high input agriculture. Um, now we are saving over uh, $60,000 annually, uh, just, just in simple savings of, of less inputs. Um, we are running as many sheep as we always did, and our crop yields are around about around the same. But now we have more enterprises like um, like the native grass seed industry, like uh, uh, enterprise. Sorry, um, many many things. So there's been huge changes here. Um, fortunately, my son is also on the farm here, so that has allowed me to. Um, do a lot of education of people, and that's happened only because I, people have asked me to. I've never sought to be an educator. Um, I, I've been asked to talk about uh, these techniques and, and, and all of the things like you, you've been asking me today. And so I find now I spend probably three-quarters of my time uh, travelling around Australia and other countries educating, educating people on these techniques. Uh, which, when that in itself has been very good, because um, it's allowed almost the farm succession thing to happen, and, and my son is is um, he's quite comfortable with with me not being here. He probably quite enjoys it when I'm not here, actually. <laughs> so, so um, but but um, so the pra- that's the practical side of what's actually happened, um, and it's and it's been a a, a wonderful wonderful and a, a fun journey, really. Well, Colin Sice, I'd like to express my own personal gratitude for the work that you have been doing for many years, for the profound discovery uh, of pasture cropping, and for the work that you are doing to get the word out through interviews like this, and as you mentioned, education, and reaching out to researchers and continuing to experiment with this uh, system that you have developed and uh, hopefully the sky is the limit, and we will see pasture cropping um, take over uh, wherever it is appropriate and suitable for people to adopt it. That's good. Thank you very much. That concludes my interview with Colin Sice. Colin invented the practice of pasture cropping, and he was very gracious with his time and very gracious sharing the information 
about pasture cropping with the listeners of this show. And also, um, he's been very gracious with his time and his information and his knowledge uh, as an educator as well. A reminder that this is another installment in the Holistic Management series of the Agro-Innovations podcast. If you would like to learn more about holistic management, visit holisticmanagement.org. And pasture cropping is really an outgrowth in some ways of holistic management in that one of the most important components of the pasture cropping system is the use of high-density grazing to mulch the soil surface before planting the pasture crop. So planned grazing is a very important component of pasture cropping, and obviously Colin Sice is someone who looks at the whole farm system and makes his decisions accordingly. This episode of the Agro-Innovations podcast will also be published on the data and documentation blog of Holistic Management International. I will also link to that on the show notes for this episode of the podcast. The data and documentation blog at Holistic Management's website has a lot of information about holistic management especially a lot of information from peer-reviewed journals that is relevant to holistic management. So I would strongly encourage you to check that out if you are interested in these types of issues. And if you have been following closely the holistic management series of the podcast, you will be very interested, I think, in some of the writing that I am doing at that blog currently. A reminder that this and all episodes of the Agro-Innovations podcast are released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. To learn more about that, you can visit creativecommons.org. This is the Agro Innovations Podcast. I'm your host, Frank Aragona. Until next time, saludos. <laughs>